Out of the Blue by Bethany Hamilton with Cheryl Burke and Rick Bunchu from the book Soul Surfer. We bring you a reader favourite about a courageous young girl and what's become of her today. I had no warning at all, not even the slightest hint of danger on the horizon. The water was crystal clear and calm. It was more like swimming in a pool rather than the deep ocean waters in Kauai, Hawaii. The waves were small and inconsistent, and I was just kind of rolling along with them, relaxing on my surfboard with my left arm dangling in the cool water. I remember thinking, I hope the surf picks up soon, when suddenly there was a flash of grey. That's all it took, a split second. I felt a lot of pressure and a couple of fast tugs. I saw the jaws of a 4.5 metre tiger shark cover the top of my board and my left arm. Then I watched in shock as the water around me turned bright red. My left arm was gone almost to the armpit, along with a huge crescent-shaped chunk of my red, white and blue surfboard. Except for the fact that it was Halloween, it had been a morning like any other. My mum Cherie and I set off before dawn looking for a good surf spot. When we arrived at our destination, a place called Cannons, the sun wasn't up yet. I got out of the car to take a look but it was too dark to see the water. I couldn't hear much either. If the surf is really big, you can actually hear it cracking on the reef from a long way away. It doesn't seem like much is happening, I said. I guess we should head back, mum said with a sigh. She was equally disappointed. Maybe the surf will come up tomorrow. I knew that if I didn't surf, I would be home doing social studies, English or maths. Because I was working to be a professional surfer, I was homeschooled so I'd have the time to practice, but my parents piled on the homework. I had started entering competitions while I was still in primary school. Travelling around the state of Hawaii isn't easy or cheap, and my parents aren't rich. Dad is a waiter, and Mum cleans rental apartments. We had to come up with money for entry fees, airline tickets, car rentals, food and hotel costs. And unlike with golf or some other sport, if you win there is little or no money, especially in the kid and girl divisions. But my parents were willing to sacrifice for me. With their support, I entered my first major competition at age eight, the Rel Sun Contest at Makaha Beach on the island of Oahu. The waves were big and I could feel the adrenaline rush. A lot of young kids get intimidated when the surf starts getting huge. Me? I live for it. The bigger the better. I ended up winning all my heats and the division championships. After that, I entered more and more contests and did pretty well in most of them. It seemed possible that I could become a professional surfer like a couple of other girls from my island have done. At least my parents and my two older brothers thought so. It was what I wanted more than anything in the world. As Mum and I were driving away from Cannons, I gave it one last shot. Let's just check out Tunnels Beach. Tunnels is a short walk from Cannons. Surfers like it because way out on the edge of the reef is a lightning-fast wave almost year-round. Sure, we can go take a look, Mum replied, and started to park the car. About that time, a black pickup truck turned into the lot. It was Alana Blanchard, my best friend, her 15-year-old brother Byron, and her dad Holt. Okay, I thought, maybe this wouldn't be a total washout after all. Even though the waves were crummy, it was sunny, the water was warm, and my friends were here to hang out with. Can I stay, Mum? I asked. Just make sure that Holt brings you home, she called, 
and with that I raced down the trail with my friends to Tunnels Beach. I was happy that I was going surfing. I was happy to be with my friends. I felt the warm water slosh against my ankles, and just before I jumped in, I looked at my watch. It was 6.40 on that beautiful Halloween morning in 2003. Lying on my surfboard, watching my blood spread in the water around me, I said to my friends nearby, in a loud yet not panicked voice, I just got attacked by a shark. Byron and Holt got to me in a flash. Holt's face was white and his eyes were wide. Oh my God, he said, but he didn't freak out. Instead, he took control of the situation. He pushed me by the tail of my board and I caught a small wave that washed me over the reef. It's a miracle that it was high tide. If it had been low tide, we would have had to go all the way around the reef to get to shore. As it was, the beach was still a long 400 metres away. My arm was bleeding badly, but not spewing blood like it should with a major artery open. I know now that wounds like mine often cause the arteries to roll back and tighten. I was praying like crazy. Please God, help me, let me get to the beach, over and over again. Holt took off his grey long sleeve rash guard shirt. The reef was shallow now, only a metre or so deep, so he stood up and tied the rash guard around the stub of my arm to act as a tourniquet. Then he had me grab onto the bottom of his swim trunks and hold on tight as he paddled both of us towards shore. Byron was already ahead of us, stroking like crazy to the beach to call emergency services. Holt kept having me answer questions like, Bethany, are you still with me? How are you doing? I think he wanted to make sure that I didn't pass out in the middle of the ocean. So I was talking, just answering his questions and praying out loud and watching the beach get closer and closer. Once we reached the shore, Holt lifted me off the surfboard and laid me on the sand. He then tied a surfboard leash around my arm to stop the bleeding. At that point, everything went black, and I'm not sure how long I was out of it. I kept coming in and out of consciousness. What happened after that is confusing, a mix of sights, sounds and feelings. I remember being cold. I heard this happens when you lose a lot of blood. People brought beach towels and wrapped me up in them. I remember starting to feel pain in my stump and thinking, this hurts a lot. And I know I said, I want my mum. I remember being very thirsty and asking Alana for water. So she ran up to a visitor, Fred Murray, who had heard cries for help and dashed to the beach while the rest of his family relaxed at a beachfront rental home. Come with me, he yelled, and they both raced back to get one of his family members, a man named Paul Wheeler, who was a captain and a paramedic at a California fire station. Alana explained to him, as best she could in her state of shock, what had happened and that I needed water. Paul didn't hesitate. He bolted out the door to be by my side. I remember his face and the compassion in his voice. I think everyone was relieved that there was a professional on the scene. I know it comforted me. Paul examined the wound. Alana came with water, but Paul advised against it. I know you're thirsty, he told me, but you're going to need surgery and you want an empty stomach. A neighbour brought a small first aid kit and Paul slipped on gloves so he could wrap my wound in gauze to keep it clean. I remember wincing as he covered it up, but I knew he had to do it. Paul felt my pulse. He shook his head. She's lost a lot of blood, he said quietly. I remember thinking, why is the ambulance taking so long to get here? Please, please hurry. Holt decided we couldn't wait any longer. He, Paul and Fred Murray lifted me onto Holt's board 
and carried me to the parking lot, where they put me in the back of the Blanchard's truck. Again, I kept passing out, only catching glimpses of what was going on and bits of frantic conversation. Then, at some point, emergency vehicles arrived. I remember their sirens, high-pitched and shrill. I remember being stuck with needles and being slid onto a stretcher and into the back of the ambulance. I remember most clearly the comforting words of the Kauai paramedic. He spoke softly, reassuring me, and held my hand as we were pulling out of the tunnel's car park. My dad had been scheduled for knee surgery that morning and was already at the hospital on the operating table, anaesthetised from the waist down. His orthopaedic surgeon, Dr David Ravinsky, was preparing to start the operation when an emergency room nurse burst into the room. Just a heads up, Dr Ravinsky, she announced. There's a 13-year-old girl coming, a shark attack victim. We're going to need this room right away. My dad heard her and knew in his heart that the 13-year-old girl had to be either me or Alana. The doctor tried to calm him. I'll go and try to find out what's happening. Within five minutes, Dr Ravinsky returned. His face was pale and there were tears in his eyes. Tom, it's Bethany, he said softly. She's in a stable condition. That's all I know. I'm going to have to roll you out. Bethany's coming in here. My dad later told me that his hour in the recovery room was torture. I tried to will the feeling back into my legs so I could run in there and see you, he admitted. I had no idea how bad you were. I prayed all you needed were just a few stitches. But just as his heart had told him that I was the one who had been attacked, it also told him it was much worse than just a few stitches. Mum had been informed only that I'd been attacked, but given no details of my injury. As she rushed to the hospital, her longtime friend, Evelyn Cook, reached her on her mobile phone. Cherie, she's lost an arm. Mum dropped the phone, pulled the car over to the edge of the road, stared at her two hands on the steering wheel, and broke down weeping. Dr Ravinsky assured my parents that the odds were in my favour. I was young, in great physical shape, the cut had been direct rather than a ragged tear, and my calmness had kept my heartbeat slow enough to keep the severed artery from quickly draining my blood supply. Everyone's fast reactions had also been a big help. Look, he told her, a lot of things had to have gone right for her to make it to this point. She's got everything going for her. He also was optimistic that I would be able to compensate well with one arm in the future. In fact, he figured that even a prosthetic arm might have a 50-50 chance of being practical. A lot of kids get used to making do without the missing limb, he told my mother, and Bethany is a fighter. It took two operations to treat my injury. Dr Ravinsky first had to thoroughly clean the wound, since shark bites tend to have a high risk of infection. Then he isolated the nerves and cut them, causing them to retract and reducing the potential for phantom pain, the feeling of an ache in a portion of a limb that no longer exists in reality, but still sends signals to the brain. Most of the wound was then left open, but packed with gauze for several days to ensure that no infection took place. Three days later, Dr Ravinsky performed a second surgery that included closing the wound by using a flap of my skin. At one point in the days that followed, I said to Dad, I want to be the best surf photographer in the world. That was my way of saying, I know my surfing days are over. He just nodded, I'm sure you will be, and tried to smile. He knew what I meant. But a few days later, I started thinking about going surfing again. 
However, the doctor had said I had to stay out of the water for three to four weeks after the second surgery. In the meantime, there was plenty to occupy my time and thoughts. The main thing was getting used to the reality of my injury. When a nurse came to change the dressing on my arm a couple of days after I was released from the hospital, it was the first time that any of us had seen just how much of my arm was missing. My grandmother went out on the porch and cried. It shook my brother Timmy up so much that he went to his room and stayed in bed all afternoon. My parents had a rough time too. As for me, when I looked at that little stump of an arm held together with long black stitches, I almost fainted. It was a lot worse than I had imagined. I knew then that I was going to need help from someone much bigger than me if I was ever going to get back in the water. In my first weeks at home, my family and I experienced an outpouring of aloha. For those who make Hawaii their home, aloha means much more than hello and goodbye. It goes back to the old Hawaiian traditions and it means a mutual regard and affection of one person for another without any expectation of something in return. It means you do something from the pureness of your heart. Take the folks from my church. When we got home from the hospital, we discovered they had come into our house and radically cleaned the place, putting flowers everywhere. For two weeks, every night, someone showed up with dinner. People kept stopping by and offering to help out in any way they could. I was also really moved by the number of people who wanted to help raise money for my family. People didn't ask us, they just looked at the situation we were in and said, I want to help this family, they're going to need it. On Saturday, November 15, only a couple of weeks after the attack, hundreds and hundreds of people descended on the main ballroom of the Kauai Marriott in Lihu for a silent auction that included more than 500 donated items. Because I was still trying to build up my strength, I couldn't attend, which was a bummer, because I'm the type of person who never likes to miss a fun party, especially one in my honour. On a huge stage, some of the island's most sought-after names performed, such as surf legend Titus Kinemaka and singer Milani Bilyeu. Even rock icon Graham Nash, formerly of the legendary Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, came to sing on my behalf. My dad was floored. He told me he hadn't seen the island come together like this for a cause since the aftermath of the 1992 hurricane Iniki, which devastated most of Kauai. Who would have ever thought I would be as important as a natural disaster? The bidding was fast and furious, and when it was all over, donations from the night totaled about $75,000. It made us feel humble and loved. That aloha spirit wasn't limited to Hawaii. My folks, checking their postbox, were astounded to find thousands of letters awaiting them, from all over America and the world. In the envelopes were good wishes along with cheques or cash, sometimes hundreds of dollars, sometimes a $5 bill. We really don't know why so many people wrote, prayed or gave, but we are very, very grateful for each one of them. One organisation, Save Our Seas, learnt what had happened to me and heard me say in an interview that if I couldn't surf again, maybe I would take surf pictures. So they offered to train me. It was an awesome offer. But first, there was something I had to do. The day before Thanksgiving, a small group of family and friends went with me to a beach off the beaten path. We arrived late in the afternoon, and when we came down the trail, we saw that the place was about as good as it ever gets. The surfing area was packed with local talent. 
This was the day that I would see whether I could surf again. My brother Noah wanted to film my first ride on his video camera, so he put it in an underwater housing and swam out with it. My dad took time off work and came in the water for a front row view, just swimming along with me and shouting, Go girl! at the top of his lungs. Matt George, a family friend and writer for Surfer Magazine, was with us. And of course Alana and a bunch of my friends were there too. Alana and I walked into the surf together, just like we did on that early Halloween morning. It felt so good to step into the liquid warmth and taste the salty water. It was like coming back home after a long, long trip. To think I had come so close to losing forever all these things that I loved so much, the ocean, my family and my friends. Alana paddled through the rolling white water, surfers call this soup, and headed further out to the blue, unbroken waves. I decided to make it easy on myself and ride some soup to begin with. In some ways, it was like learning to surf all over again. I had to learn how to paddle evenly with one arm, and when I felt the wave pick me up, I had to put my hand flat on the centre of the deck to get to my feet, rather than grab the surfboard rail the way you would if you had two hands. My first couple of tries didn't work. I couldn't get up. I thought it was going to be easier than it was. My dad kept shouting, Bethany, try one more time. This one will be it. Then it happened. A wave rolled through. I caught it, put my hand on the deck to push up. I was standing. It's hard for me to describe the joy I felt after I stood up and rode the wave in for the first time after the attack. Even though I was all wet, I felt tears trickling down my face. Everyone was cheering. That day I caught a whole bunch of waves and getting up got easier and easier. One thing led to another and soon I was back on the competition circuit, once again working towards a professional career. Sometimes people ask me if I am ever scared of sharks now that I am surfing all the time again. The answer is yes. Sometimes my heart pounds when I see a shadow under the water. Sometimes I have nightmares. And I am not ready to go out and surf tunnels again. I'm not sure I will ever go back there. Yet even when my nerves get the best of me, I do know this. God is watching out for me. And while I don't want to do something stupid like paddle out where someone has just seen a shark... In the end, I trust him to take care of me. The other day I got an email telling me about another kid who lost his arm. He is an 8th grader from Raleigh, North Carolina, and he is very athletic like me, only his big sport is wakeboarding. He even had taken up guitar like I had before the attack. The lady who wrote to me knew that Logan was pretty down, and she hoped I might be able to cheer him up. I grabbed the phone, called his house and said, Hey Logan, this is Bethany Hamilton from Kauai, Hawaii. You probably heard that I lost my arm to a shark. Yeah, he said softly. I just want you to know that I'm surfing in the national finals with one arm. Yeah, cool, he said. Look, I know you may not feel great right now, but I know that you can do a whole lot of stuff too. You can and you will, okay? We chatted some more and I could feel his mood brightening. Keep in touch and let me know what you're up to, I added. He promised he would, and I know that Logan is on the road back. Moments like this make me think I may be able to do more good having one arm than when I had two. I think this was God's plan for me all along. I am not saying that God made the shark bite me. I think he knew it would happen, 
and he made a way for my life to be happy and meaningful in spite of it happening. Today, 15 years after the shark attack, Bethany Hamilton is a professional surfer, motivational speaker, and a mother whose young sons Tobias and Wesley are following in her footsteps, witnessing life from a surfboard. In 2013, Hamilton married Kansas native Adam Dirks, who was working in Hawaii when they met. Dirks now devotes himself to Hamilton's professional surfing career. Out of the water, Hamilton is a motivational speaker for students and amputees. I get to encourage and inspire young people all over the world, she says. I love being able to remind people you can overcome the hardest of times. To bring hope to others and live for more than my own endeavours makes life a lot more beautiful. The documentary Bethany Hamilton, Unstoppable, was released this year. It follows the 2011 hit film Soul Surfer, a drama inspired by her experience. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.